0: Amen. Take your Bible and find the book of Esther. Esther chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter, so we'll begin right here in verse 1 of Esther 5. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? And it shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered and said, If it seemed good unto the king... Let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed." Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform the request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and the servants of the king. And Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Well, he sure did like to congratulate himself, didn't he? Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged at their own. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Thank you for reading with me. Will you pray? Father, as we look into your word, may we be captured by the wonder of it. May we be captured by the wonder of your plan of salvation of your redemptive plan, how you have told that story, how you've told redemptive history, the different ways that you have done so in your book. Lord, may you help me highlight that this morning. May I highlight your goodness, your sovereignty, your graciousness, your willingness to save, and what you have done to do away with our sins so we could have fellowship with you. Lord, as we learn this, may sinners be reconciled to God. Lord, may your people be drawn closer to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you remember, Esther 4 ends with Esther calling a three-day fast uh, because she is going into the king's presence uninvited. And it very well could have been, had the king rejected her when she walked in, that she would die. If you went to the king unannounced and he didn't accept you, the rule was, the law was, that you would be put to death. Chapter 5 begins three days after. Chapter 4 ends. For you Old Testament scholars, you understand that in the Old Testament you see things happening after three days. After three days. I'm telling you that so that when you read the Scripture, And you see that phrase, after three days, or in three days' time, or a three days' journey, that that's supposed to remind you of something. That is supposed to point you to something. I'll hopefully remember to mention this again at the end of the sermon. But the writers of the Scripture are preparing us for something, even in the Old Testament. Chapter 5 begins... Three days after chapter four ends, the writer tells us that on the third day, Esther decked herself out in her royal regalia and stood in the inner court. If there ever was a time that a woman put her big girl breeches on, it was on this day when Esther approached the king for all intent and purpose, for all she knew She was going to her death. It was that much of a possibility. The void between Esther chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 5, verse 1 is pregnant with suspense. We read forward in chapter 5, wondering whether Xerxes will extend the scepter in acceptance of his queen, or will he have her killed for approaching him uninvited? Will Esther survive? And will the Jews be saved? It all seems to hinge on the king's mood and his scepter. I imagine that just before Esther entered the court, she paused. Having fasted for three days, and every Jew in the empire fasting with her, she paused and breathed one more prayer, took a deep breath, and then sashayed into the king's inner court. The king looks out from his throne and sees his beautiful queen, whom he has not seen in 33 days. I'm sure her heart began to race, and apparently the king's heart began to race as well. For when he sees her again, In all of her beauty, we find the same words pertaining to Esther that we found all the way back in chapter 2 when she was taken from her home and put in the king's harem. And she obtained favor. And the king extended the scepter to her in acceptance. Standing in the king's favor, she didn't die, but she lived standing in the king's favor. She was in a position to undo that wicked fellow by the name of Haman who was seeking to undo her and all of her people. Interestingly enough, the tide of conflict in the book of Esther begins to turn here in chapter 5 at of all things a banquet. It's interesting because the book of Esther and the events in it begin to sour at what? A banquet. A feast. Now we see the scales are about to tip in Esther and Mordecai and the Jews favor and of all things, a banquet. Redemption's story is pictured for us in a few different ways throughout the Scripture. It's pictured for us in garden scenes. The Bible begins in a garden. And the story ends in a garden setting in the book of Revelation. And then we have this garden language, this horticultural language that happens throughout the Scripture. It describes Jesus as the root of the stump of Jesse. He calls himself the vine over in the book of John. So we find this garden setting. Redemption story is told at weddings in the Bible. We begin in the garden with a wedding scene as God presents Eve to Adam and he says, hubba hubba. Actually,
1: it says that he said
0: bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh he really liked her <laughs> and then at the end we're revelation chapter 20 or the end of revelation however many chapters there is i'm having a moment here forgive me <laughs> we find the spirit and the bride in heaven giving their invitation and yet another way redemption story is told throughout the scripture is at banquets, at feasts. So it is no accident what is going on here in Esther 5, that things are going to turn for her deliverance, for Mordecai's deliverance, for all of the Jews in the empire. That said, I want you to look with me at three things that are associated with, at this banquet that Esther has planned. Notice with me first the the invitation to this banquet. The invitation to this banquet. Verse 2, of course, we're told that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, uh, Ahasuerus, the king, held out the golden scepter to his queen and she drew near to him. Apparently, Esther was looking mighty fine because the king tells her to make a request, any request, and he will grant it up to half of the kingdom. Wow. Another interesting point of observation is how the king has changed. How the king has changed. When we first meet the king, he demands that his queen at the time, Vashti, come over to the palace and and show her crown and probably not wearing anything else to all of the other dignitaries that are with him. And she said, absolutely not. And he had her banished from his presence forever. And now here he is. He has a queen coming in that he hasn't invited, which is against the law. And he says to her, what is it you want? And I will give it to you. Man, the king has begun to change here. Esther responds with an invitation to a banquet. What do you want, queen? I will give you whatever I have, whatever you ask for, up to half of the kingdom. And she says, come to a banquet. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I could have thought of something better. I had to come out of there with, I don't know, a few acres of land,
1: maybe a new truck, corvette? Maybe a gun or two? But
0: Esther doesn't ask for gold and she doesn't ask for silver and she doesn't ask for jewelry or chariots or horses or garments, a fine linen. Instead of asking for anything material, she invited the king to a banquet. Look with me at a couple of things about this invitation to this banquet. Notice who this invitation was for. It wasn't just for the king. Who this invitation was for. In verse 4, we learn that the invitation to the banquet to be held later that day. You understand there are two different banquets going on here in chapter 5. There's one happening on the day she walks in, and it's the setup for the banquet on the next day. Esther's husband, the king... Of the world superpower of that day, she invites him. She wanted her husband there. Verse 4 gives us the other invitee to the banquet. Only three people here at this banquet. And to our surprise, the other invitee,
1: besides the king, is Haman. that
0: wicked fellow Haman. At first blush, we want to scratch our heads in disbelief. At her invitation to Haman to come sit down at a banquet. The same guy who wants her adoptive father, Mordecai, and all of her people dead. It's not just that he wanted them dead, but he was taking measures to see to it that they all ended up that way. And they had even set a date for that to happen. What in the world? Is going on. Well, as we move forward, we can see why she has invited Wicked Haman to this banquet. We only really see who this invitation was for, we also see what this invitation was about. I feel sure that many of you, if not most of you, know what this story is about, and you know how this book ends. But maybe some of you don't. But if you haven't read forward, and if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, what I'm about to say is going to be a little bit of a spoiler for you. I'm just giving you the courtesy of a spoiler alert. But if you know the story, we can look back and see exactly what this invitation is about one thing, it's about
1: the destruction of Haman.
0: That rotten individual that she has invited to this banquet. Esther is inviting Haman to his own downfall. I like her style. <laughs> Haman is going to see this as a high honor. But really, it is a low blow dealt to him by Esther. She enticed him to this banquet by feeding on his pride and on his appetite. Reminds me of that 19th century poem written by Mary Howitt. Will you step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. But her invitation wasn't just about the destruction of Haman, but it was about the deliverance of her people. As I said said earlier, it's interesting that things are going to begin to turn around at a banquet. This second banquet that's recorded for us, and not the last, it magnifies the providence of God in light of the first banquet, where Queen Vashti was banished from the king's presence in order that Esther could rise up in her place and be at this place, at this moment, to be the very agent that God would use to turn Haman's wicked plan back over on himself. As I think about this banquet, this party, this feast, to which Esther invited Xerxes and Haman, and how it is at this banquet where the tables begin to turn, so that the people of God would be delivered from the evil against them. I can't help but think about how much Jesus liked to go to feasts, banquets, parties, suppers. I can't help but think about how in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, that Jesus went to a banquet hosted by Matthew Levi, where a lot of Matthew Levi's past associates and friends were present. And while Jesus is eating with Matthew's publican friends and other folks of ill repute in that day the Pharisees looked over and said at Jesus and said why this man eats with publicans and sinners <laughs> amen I'm glad Jesus has a place at his table Republicans, Republicans, and sinners of every stripe. we only got two or three laughs on that one. I can't help but think about how that in Luke 7.31 that Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. I can't help but think about the parable that Jesus told of the man who made a great supper, a great banquet, a great feast, and he invited many to come. And when those that he initially invited refused and rejected his offer, he ordered his servants to invite the blind, the lame, and the poor to come in and fill up his house and sit at the table with him i can 't help but think about how that in matthew twenty two two Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast of all things. It's clear that one of the settings in which redemption story is told in the Bible is at a table, at a feast, at a banquet. And the most perfect example of this is when Jesus sat down with His disciples to observe the Passover on the night of His betrayal, on the night of His arrest and where His crucifixion would begin. He told His disciples that He had embraced appointed them a kingdom so that they could sit at the table in his kingdom. Michael Beckett, in his commentary on the book of Esther, I believe sums it up best. He wrote, Jesus made the party, the feast, the banquet, his very watchword for the fullness of the kingdom. Jesus bids us celebrate with ordinary bread and wine the extraordinary deliverance of all humankind made in Him in His death. Whether Esther or the writer knew it or not, the president of the telling of the story of God in time and place, which is the Holy Spirit, knows that it it is at the table In the company of sinners, as often as we eat and drink, that we celebrate the invisible mystery of our deliverance made known in Jesus. But to me, here's the best part of the whole thing about redemption story being told in a banquet setting, is
1: that you're invited to the feast. So am I. It is the lame, it is the blind, the deaf,
0: the sick, the broken, the sinful, the weak who are invited to sit at the table with Jesus. And in case you're wondering who in the world that would be, well, it's me,
1: and it's you. I think about John 21, 12. Jesus had risen from the tomb.
0: The disciples, at least Peter and John and some of the women, had walked inside and saw the empty tomb. And later that night, Simon Peter, in a profound spiritual epiphany, decided to go fishing.
1: That was never mind. You remember, he
0: miserably failed the Lord just a few days earlier. I just get the distinct feeling that Simon Peter just couldn't look at him. Feeling the shame of his denial of Jesus, he just couldn't look at him. He says, I'm going
1: fishing. And about seven others went with him. And they fished all night Jesus came to the shore where they could see Him,
0: and he cooked fish over a fire and when the risen lord of glory had finished cooking he called to his feeble faithless disciples
1: come and eat <laughs> come and dine
0: with all of your problems with all of your failures, with all of your weakness, with all of your drama,
1: He invites you to the table.
0: His call is still going out. Come and dine. Come and sit with me at the table. Come and enjoy fellowship with me. Come and be granted entrance into my kingdom. He's inviting you into fellowship with Himself. You see, they didn't just always sit down with people that they didn't really know in those days and that they didn't really care about. There wasn't a bee's restaurant where you sit down or Ichiban or Ichiban or however in the world you say it and don't ask me to spell it. I can't even spell
1: CPR.
0: Or you sit down with strangers. No, 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 no. No, it was people you cared about. It was, it was how they demonstrated their common fellowship with each other, and Jesus invites you into that relationship with Him. And if you've already accepted that invitation, give Him glory and praise and be grateful that He has given you a seat at the table with Him the invitees, the invitation to this banquet. Notice also the inquiry at this banquet. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, on this point, but I do want to point out something to you. Listen as I read verses 6 through 8. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition... And my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. The point here is that the king was ready to hear, and he was ready to act on Esther's request. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things about uh, Xerxes' inquiry. Uh, of uh, as to Esther's request I, i'm going to give you these and then we'll make application consider with me first the grace of this inquiry the grace of this inquiry Xerxes inquiry as to Esther's request is directly related to her standing in him the favor that she had found in his presence Back in verse 2, when she approached the king without being summoned, she obtained favor in his sight. She wasn't supposed to be there without being invited. You, you already know that. You already know the, the risk that she was taken. But instead of death, she found grace. Instead of finding rejection, she was granted a request. I'm going to move on. Not only the grace of this inquiry, notice also the generosity of this inquiry. For the second time, Ahasuerus has asked Esther what she wanted and has already put a stamp of approval upon it up to half of the kingdom. And in verse 3, she made the risky approach. He asked her what request was and he would grant it. Now in verse 6, she does the same thing again. Again, my point is, is that Xerxes is a king ready to hear and willing to answer the request of his king, of his queen, excuse me, because she stands in his favor. Esther's privileged position in standing in the king's favor, it reminds me of our standing as Christians. Because of Christ, we stand in the favor of the great King. Because of Christ, we have full, unlimited access to God. We can come into His presence. Without fear of rejection, without fear of condemnation, we can make our requests known to Him. We can ask Him for His resources, for ours are not enough. We can ask what we will. And when it's in accordance with His will, it will be granted. Why? Because we're in Christ We stand in His favor, and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, the beloved of the Father, full access to the Father. He has all of the resources of the Father at His disposal, and He doesn't just promise half of the kingdom, but all things. For it's written in Romans 8.32, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, Will he not with him also freely give us all things? Now listen, don't run somewhere with that promise that you ought not be running. It doesn't mean that God's going to give you everything in this world that you want. But it does mean that he's going to give you everything in this world and in this life that you need to get you on home to heaven where you are joint heirs with Christ. Where you have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, that is kept for you by Christ himself. As the Jews would be saved through Esther's standing with the King, we have been, we are being, and we will be delivered through Christ's standing with the Father and our standing in Him. Amen. Amen. Notice with me finally, I would point out the intrigue at this banquet. The intrigue at this banquet. We usually think of intrigue as something fascinated. I'm intrigued by something, but the word has another meaning, and it has to do with the secret planning of something. In this case, detrimental to someone. Haman was a man of intrigue, he is a man with a plan for the demise of the Jews. And he's summoned by the king for the first banquet only to be invited to a second banquet the next day. And he leaves the first banquet all happy and his self-esteem at an all-time high. He's really feeling good about himself because he went to a banquet on one day only to be invited to another banquet the other day with the elites, just the king, just the queen, and himself. Man, he's on top of the world. He's walking on air. He's on the mountaintop. Until he encounters Mordecai, who would neither stand nor sidestep for Haman. You remember it was supposed to have been that when people saw Haman, they were to give him reverence and honor. And if they were standing in his path, they were to sidestep for him. Well, Mordecai sitting down and just paid him no mind at all. And the fact that Mordecai was not as impressed with Haman as Haman was impressed with himself absolutely tore him up. Verse 9 says, He was full of indignation against Mordecai. The ancient Hebrew way of saying he was
1: mad.
0: But he restrained himself. He didn't fly hot in that moment. He didn't pitch a fit. He didn't cuss. In my family, we called him. Pitching a Cicero, one of my forebears by the name of Cicero Gates had a terrible temper. It is said that he would pitch awful fits. And so when I was a kid, pitch a fit, thank the Lord, I don't ever do that anymore. My granny would say, well, quit pitching that Cicero. He didn't pitch a Cicero at that point. He swallowed his pride, put his emotions in his back pocket. And when he went home, he, if he had suspenders, he stuck his
1: thumbs in them. He began
0: bragging to his wife and his children and his friends about how much money he had and how he had been promoted and how many children he had sired and how Esther had invited him to a banquet to which the only other invited was the king himself. Sounds like his life was pretty good, but verse 13 gives us the fly and the ointment of his existence. Yet all this is nothing. (laughs) So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. One person. One negative response. Ruined his entire life. What a drama queen Haman must have been. Nobody liked Haman better than Haman. Nobody hated Mordecai more than Haman. And as we look further into this text, we see that at the intersection of the lives of Haman and Mordecai, there are two plans Two plans that are racing towards a head-on collision. There is first a secret plan. Secret plan. Mrs. Haman and all of Haman's friends get together and they come up with this secret plan in verse 13. Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits height, And tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai be hanged thereon. Then go thou merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. Well, of course it did. And he caused the gallows to be made. Haman had already set his plan into motion to exterminate the the Jews, and there was nothing secret about that. That had been made known, published throughout the entire empire. But that wasn't good enough. In the confines of his own home and unknown to anyone else, Haman, his wife, and his friends hatched a plot for Mordecai to be hanged on a 75-foot-high gallows. You wouldn't have to hang me. I'd die of a heart attack at 75 feet. Oh, Haman was indeed a man of intrigue. He loved the secret plan. And he was pretty good at coming up with them. But there was also a secret plan in play against Haman, which he was completely unaware and would remain that way until it was too late. You see, not only is there a secret plan at work here, there is also a sovereign plan at work here it just keeps looking worse from one side of the story one perspective of it it just keeps looking worse for mordecai esther and and the jews and this chapter leaves us with some questions will mordecai be hanged will haman be able to carry out his plan for the extermination of the jews i'm doing the batman thing again aren't i
1: Will Mordecai and Esther and the Jews be saved? I don't want to get too far ahead
0: for those of you who may not know. But I will say that while Haman is concocting his and implementing his secret plan, God's already been carrying out His sovereign plan. And we see it in the way that Esther ends up in this position anyway. There are times in our lives when things are going on behind the scenes that we just don't know anything about. Sometimes there are plans for our demise, and we know the enemy of our souls would love to kill and to maim and to destroy. And even sometimes on the physical level, in our personal relationships, You know, it's not just the old devil that has secret plans against us. Sometimes people in our own circles are doing and saying things and planning things behind our own backs. But you know, it really doesn't matter who's concocting a secret plan against us because there is a God in heaven who is carrying out a sovereign plan. And the sovereign plan always overrules the secret plan. And whatever the secret plan means to us for evil, the sovereign planner means for our good. And he is, His sovereignty is such that He doesn't have to stop the secret plan against us. No, God's sovereignty is such that He can work through The secret plan. And He does work through the secret plan meant for our harm. And He uses it for our good and His glory. And as long as I'm in the plan of the sovereign, I won't worry so much about what's being planned in secret. Nowhere is this better pictured than at another banquet that would take place. Jesus gathered His disciples in a borrowed upper room to observe the Passover. Jesus broke bread and he supped wine with them. He told them that they would observe this feast together and that we would join them one day in heaven. And even in that environment, there was one who wasn't happy.
1: He was the one who carried the money. Judas Iscariot.
0: He was at supper with Jesus. But he was also in the middle of a secret plan. Well, secret to a lot of humans, but not secret to God. Not even secret to Jesus. Because the plan was against Jesus. And Jesus turned and looked at him and said, what you are going to do, do quickly. And with those words, Judas Iscariot went out from supper, went to the priests and the Pharisees, and sold Jesus out to be arrested for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. The secret plan of Judas and the Pharisees would be carried out. The Lamb of God would be slaughtered and hanged on a tree, the Roman cross. But it turns out that what Judas and the Pharisees thought for themselves to be a secret plan was subordinate to God's sovereign plan. And as a matter of fact, their secret plan was even a part of God's sovereign plan. How do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter tells the Jews that Jesus was delivered to the cross by the determinate counsel, and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereign plan worked through and it overruled Judas's secret plan. And three days later, did you catch that? Three days later, what are the first words of Esther chapter 5 verse 1? Now it came to pass upon the third day, And three days later... Jesus rose from the dead with all power in His hand. And because of that, one day we'll sit with Him at His banquet, at His wedding supper. We will sit with Him at His table. It's not just that we enjoy fellowship with Him now, but that we are going to enjoy fellowship with Him in His presence in heaven for eternity. We will have a seat at His table. And we will live forever in a feast-like atmosphere with the Lord Jesus. What do you mean, banquet? Oh, as I said, I'm talking about fellowship with Jesus in this life. Sitting at the table with Him. We who used to be enemies brought into the house, brought into the family, pulling up a chair at the table... And having communion and fellowship with our Lord
1: and with His other people in this life. An eternal fellowship with Him in heaven. You're invited.
0: You're invited to the feast. Will you come sit at the table? You might be wondering, how in the world do I even get to the table?
1: How do I even get in the dining room? Simple. The invitation's always going out. Jesus offers the invitation come and dine, come and fellowship. Come into a relationship with the God of the universe through Him by faith. Or if you will, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He offers you a Seat at the table. By faith in Jesus.
0: His death on the cross for your sins and His resurrection from the dead to give you a new life, a new standing, and a seat at the table.
1: Will you come? You're standing with me.